Well, this week we are in Torah portion, Akare Mot. And you're like, what did he just say? Bless you. No, I didn't sneeze. I said two Hebrew words. Akare is after, Mot is death. And we actually have a double Torah portion this week, which is paired with the word Kadushim, which means the holy ones. And the Torah portions are this like ancient community Bible reading program that we have tapped into and we follow here. Synagogues and churches all around the world follow this community Bible reading program. And the, the Torah is the first how many books of the Bible? Five. Five. And it's divided into how many sections? 54. It's confusing because there's 52 weeks in a year. But sometimes we double up and there's only there's 54 Torah portions. And we are on number 29 of 54. And um, this is all about the death of Aaron's two sons, Nadav and Avihu. They were the first, what we call, crispy critters. They approached the holy place against protocol, didn't they? Now... About a year ago, yeah, this in May 2020, I did a really in-depth teaching on this Torah portion, Akhare Mot and Kedoshim, in the year 5780, and I went into the nitty-gritty of the theology of Messiah being our, our high priest, and then integrated the Yom Kippur offering in this week's Torah portion into the book of Hebrews, and kind of helped you... Um, elucidate the book of Hebrews a little bit more and understand it better. Um, I'm not doing that this year. And there's a lot of depth there. There's a lot of good stuff. If you want to understand the, right, the, the book of Hebrews better, go back and listen to this from about a year ago. And it's available and you can listen to it um, and, and get kind of caught up to speed on that. This year, however, we're going to focus on kind of a different aspect of this week's Torah portion. And I start off with a story of a king. Like, what does this have to do with Yom Kippur or this week's Torah portion? Well, there once was a shepherd who became a great king. His kingdom was extensive in its scope and his subjects loyal to his crown. His army was continually victorious in combat and the borders of his kingdom continued to expand. This musically inclined shepherd king was described as a man after God's own heart. He had one problem, however. In his pride and lust for more pleasure and power, he fell for a married woman. He looked out from the roof of his sprawling palace and unashamedly watched the wife of one of his army's commanders bathing. He seized this woman and had an affair with her. Then, if that's not enough, he purposely had the warrior's husband I'm sorry, the, the, the wife's husband killed in combat so he could have the girl all to himself. In short, this king quickly descended from an honorable, godly king to what we would call a sexual predator and even murderer. But again, he is described as a man after God's own heart. But why? How does he deserve such an honor? How does David, in all of his dysfunction and sin, secure this promise from the creator that his descendants would sit on the throne and that from his lineage and this adulterous relationship, of all things, would emerge the savior of the world? 
To answer that question, we have to understand the heart of God. We have to understand the heart of Torah. And we have to understand the heart of this book that we're in. The book of Leviticus, or in Hebrew, we call the book of Vayikra. So, what is meant by the phrase God's own heart? And how was David after it? Psalm 1, let me show you some of the lyrics of the song this, this poet, king, this musician, king composed. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or set foot in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the Torah of Hashem, and on his Torah he meditates day and night. Let me show you another uh, set of lyrics that he wrote here. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the Torah of the Lord. Another one, Psalm 119, 174. I long for your salvation, David says, your Yeshua, and your Torah is my delight. See, David is a man who early in his life saw the beauty and the necessity of what? The Torah. He saw that as God's heart, and he sought after it. I mean, even so much, if you look at a Torah scroll, the very first letter of the Torah, this, the very first word of the Torah is right here. Bereshit, in the beginning, in Bereshit. But if you look at the last word of the Torah, it's Yisrael. So if you take the first letter of the entire Torah, and you take the last letter of the entire Torah, you put them together and you have the word Lev. Lev is the Hebrew word for heart. So the Torah, is bookended by this word, heart. Got me so far? You following so far? We're good? Okay. And then not only that, but God says, I want my heart to be your heart. I want my, my desires to be your desires. And he says in Deuteronomy 18, or 11, 18, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. So if the Torah is the heart of God, what is the heart of the Torah? Does the Torah have a heart? So you'll notice the books of Torah, there's five of them. I mean, just naturally looking at it, what's the middle book? Leviticus, Vayikra. But did you know that, and I was reminded by Stephanie this week, thank you Stephanie for reminding me of this, that there's a, this very interesting occurrence that happens in a Hebrew Torah, where if you start at Genesis, every 50th letter, you see the word Torah, and it happens, I know of one time it happens, at least one time, and then you see it in Exodus, every 50 letter, you see the word Torah, and that happens at least once as well. It doesn't do it in Leviticus, but if you go to Deuteronomy, if you go to Numbers, it has it every 50, le 50 letters, but guess what? It's Torah spelled backwards. Then if you get to the book of Leviticus, it's every seven letters, you get the yud Hey vav Hey in the book of Leviticus. So what is it trying to communicate to us? That the Le book of Leviticus is the heart of the Torah. And if you want to understand the heart of our creator, go to Leviticus. <laughs> and that's funny because that's the book that I remember as a 16-year-old. I was like, this year is the year I'm going to read the Bible through. And you get to Leviticus you know, 12 or whatever, and you're just like, I give up. What is the meaning of life? <laughs> you know, but that's God's heart. Like, what? How can that be? Here's, here's um, I pulled a, a, a screenshot of Leviticus 1.1. Vayikra el Moshe vayidabayar Adonai. Elav meohel moel lemor. And God spoke to Moshe, saying, 
from the tents of Me'ohel Moed, the tent of meeting. Do you see uh, right there, you have Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, equidistant from each other. So in the Midrash, it says this. Why do young children commence with the book of the law of the priests, or Leviticus, and not with the book of Genesis, right? That would make sense, because the book of Genesis, it's narrative and form. It's got a lot of great stories in it. There's a floating giant boat, and the whole world floods, and there's Abraham. There's amazing stories in the book of Genesis. But did you know that a, a Jewish child traditionally starts with the book of Leviticus when they start their Torah learning? And they say it's, it's because young children are pure, and the sacrifices are pure. So let the pure come engage in the study of the pure. So usually by the age of three, you're learning the Aleph Bet, you're learning how to read Hebrew. By the age of five, you're learning Torah. And where do you start your Torah learning? Right here in Vaikra, as a child, as a five-year-old, because you're pure. Now, I think Yeshua says something interesting about this or about being a child. He says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why children? Why? You know, children don't have ulterior motives sometimes. <laughs> when you talk to a child, you're pretty much getting face value. What you see is what you get. With adults, though, is that the, same? Is that the case? No, it's rarely the case that what you see is really what's going on in their mind and their hearts. Right? The children, there's no manipulation. I mean, there is sometimes, especially when there's food involved or whatever. But for children, they'll just say it. You know, if I have a booger hanging out of my nose, my kids will tell me. But you adults, you'll just be like, oh, man, he's, you know, just zoning out on what I'm talking about. And it's like, oh, there's a massive booger hanging out of his nose, you know? I'm just like, oh, someone should tell him that, but I'm not going to do it. You know, kids will be like, ah, oh, there's a booger in your nose, right? That's the biggest difference. I'm mean, just teaching middle school to high school. Middle schoolers, they'll tell me. High schoolers, they get to the point where they're just like, um, let's just let it hang there, you know, just see how long it's going but no, Yeshua says, therefore, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Also, Leviticus, being the heart of the Torah. Did you know that most of the 613 commandments, the mitzvot, in the Torah, right? There's 613 commandments in the Torah. Most of them, 247 of those commandments, are found right here in the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. So... Just by volume of number of commandments, Leviticus wins out of all the other books. So if Vaikra, Leviticus, is the heart of the Torah, what is the heart of Leviticus? Hmm. Well, let's look at it. Did you know the book, the book of Leviticus forms what we call a chiastic structure? And you should have seen me trying to draw this out yesterday in my desk here. Um, high schoolers were like, what are you doing, Mr. Melvin? But the first seven chapters are all about ritual sacrifices. And then chapters 8 through 10 are talks about the priest being ordained. And then you've got chapters 11 through 15. It's about maintaining ritual purity. Let's skip it and go to chapters 18 to 20. You've got moral purity. And then 21 to 22, you've got the priest's qualifications 23 to 25, we've got ritual feast days. Do you see how that, that pattern is formed? It's like a perfect menorah. What's the candle in the middle? It's chapter 16 to 17, Yom Kippur. So what is the heart of God? The Torah. What's the heart of the Torah? Vayikra, Leviticus. What's the heart of Leviticus? Yom Kippur. 
So, what is the heart of Yom Kippur? <laughs> Let's find out. We have to read a little bit. Are you guys ready to read? Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus, what? Leviticus 16 is this week's Torah portion, and we're going to read all of 16, and we're talking about the ceremony, a very important ceremony called Yom Kippur, which translates to the Day of the Covering. So Adonai spoke with Moshe after the death of Aaron's two sons when they tried to sacrifice before Adonai and they died. And Adonai said to Moshe, tell your brother Aaron not to just come at any time into the holy place beyond the curtain in front of the ark cover, which is on the ark, so that he will not die because I appear in the cloud over the ark cover. Here is how Aaron is to enter the holy place. With a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering, he is to put on holy linen, linen tunic, have the linen shorts next to his bare flesh, have the linen sash wrapped around him, and be wearing the linen turban. They are holy garments. He is to bathe his body in water and then put them on. He is to take from the community of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, a chatah offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to present the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself and make atonement for himself and his household. He is to take two goats and place them before Adonai at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Remember we talked about a couple weeks back about the threshold covenants, right? That's what's going on here at the entrance at, at the patach of the tent of meeting. What verse is I on? There, no, verse eight. Then Aaron is to cast lots, Purim, for the two goats. Which, oddly enough, if you look, there's an interesting paradox between Purim and Yom Kippur that I don't have time to get into right now, but um, I've got those in my notes if you'd like to see those at some point. One lot for Adonai and the other for Azazel. Aaron is to present the goat whose lot fell to Adonai and offer it as a chata offering, a sin offering. But the goat whose lot fell to Azazel is to be presented alive to Adonai to be used for making atonement over it by sending it away into the desert for Azazel. Aaron is to present the bull for the chatah offering for himself. He will make atonement for himself and his household. He is to slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before Adonai, and with his hands full of ground, fragrant incense, he's to bring it inside the curtain. He's put the incense on the fire before Adonai, so that the cloud, um, so, so that the cloud from the incense will cover the ark, which is over the testimony, in order that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with a fin his finger on the ark cover toward the east. And in front of the ark cover, he is to sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. He is to slaughter the goat of the chatah offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the curtain and do with its blood as he did with the bull's blood. Sprinkling it on the ark cover and in front of the ark. He will make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. And because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is there with them in the middle of their uncleanliness. No one is to be present in the tent of meeting from the time he enters the holy place to make atonement until the time he comes out, having made atonement for himself, for his household, and for the entire community of Israel. Then he's to go out to the altar that is before Adonai and make atonement for it. He is to make some, take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. He is to sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, thus purifying it and setting it apart for, from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. When he has finished atoning for the holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he is to present the live goat 
And Aaron is to lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and to confess over it all the avon, all the pesha, and all the chata of the people of Israel. He is to put them on the head of the goat and then send it away into the desert with a man appointed for that purpose. So all three levels of sin. There's three levels of sin in the Bible. I don't know if you realize that. Avon, pesha, and chata. And if you go back and listen to the teaching I did a year ago, I'll explain what those are and the differences there. But the goat will bear all their transgression, all their transgression, all their avon, away to some isolated place. And he is to let the goat go into the desert. Aaron is to go back into the tent of meeting where he's to remove the linen garments he put on when he entered the holy place, and he's to leave him there. Then he is to bathe his body in water in a holy place, put on his outer his other clothes, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people thus making atonement for himself, for the people. He is to make the fat of the sin offering go up in smoke on the altar. The man who let the goat for Azazel go is to wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. Afterwards, he may return to the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement for the holy place, is to be carried outside the camp. There, they are to burn up completely their hides, their meat and their dung. The person burning them is to wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may return to the camp. It is to be a chukat olam, a permanent regulation for you, that on the tenth day of the seventh month, you are to ana, deny yourselves, and don't do any kind of work, both the citizen and the foreigner living with you, for on this day atonement will be made for you, to purify you, and you will be clean before Adonai from all your chata, all your sins. It is a Shabbat Shabbaton, a, a Sabbath of complete rest for you. And you are to anah yourselves. That word anah, it's the same as going hungry. Look up Deuteronomy 8.3. It's where God, God made them hungry so that they would desire him. So what do we do on Yom Kippur every year? We anah ourselves. We put ourselves in a place of humility and desperation and we fast for 24 hours on Yom Kippur, even to this day. This is a chukat olam, a permanent regulation. The Kohen anointed and consecrated to be, uh, to be Kohen is in his father's place will make the atonement. He will put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and he will make atonement for the especially holy place. And he will make atonement for the tent of meeting and the altar. And he will make atonement for the Kohanim and all the people of the community. This is a chukat olam, a permanent regulation for you. To make atonement for the people of Israel because all of their sins are once a year. So Moshe did as Adonai ordered. Now what do you notice about this photo? What is the high priest not wearing? His robes of glory, right? We talked about how the high priest was to be the symbol of the Edenic man who was wearing the robes of glory and splendor, just like Adam and Eve wore those robes of glory and splendor. But here, he's taken them off, and they're all white. So, talk to me. Themes and elements of Yom Kippur. What did you see that was repetitive? Just shout it out real loud over the rain. It lasts forever, yeah. Anything else? Atonement. I hear that word over and over in there, yeah. Kippur, Kippur, Kippurim. And that's the same word, uh, to, to, it means to cover over. That's what, um, that's what 
Noah used to uh, cover over the wood of the ark. That's what uh, Moses' mother used to, to make the basket waterproof, is a covering of, of pitch. What's another theme? Say it louder. Blood was a big element. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any other themes you heard? Yeah. 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 The, the, the goat that bears all the three levels of sin is sent outside the camp. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Good. So Yom Kippur, the day of covering, is the only sacrifice that atoned for all three levels of sin. Even intentional sin. That's the only sacrifice that did away and covered intentional sin. So, and I said this a year ago in this teaching, if the temple is not there and the priesthood is not there and the Yom Kippur offering is not brought, then all of the Jewish world has an issue. What is that issue? There's no atonement for intentional sin. So if you meditate on something, that's sin. You do it, that's intentional sin. That's not atoned for any other means other than Yom Kippur. And that's the crux of the writer of Hebrews is saying, we have a high priest in the heavenly realm. He's atoning for those three levels of sin through his blood. So Yom Kippur it represents to me the holiest man in the holiest nation entering the holiest space on the holiest day of the year. It's pretty significant, right? It's a heavy, heavy day. Even so much, yeah. Well, um, we were studying this last night and we heard that, um, but it's like, it's the hardest sacrifice, that, it's the hardest time for the, um, the high priest. Yeah. Yes. So these are numbers as well as letters right here. But if you add these numbers up, you get 364. But how many days are in the year? 365. So the sages deduce that Satan accuses the people of God 364 days of the year, except on Yom Kippur, where he cannot help but sing their praises. It's interesting, right? Revelation 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, 
The salvation and the power of God and the kingdom of our God and the ruling authority of his Messiah have now come because the Satan of our brothers and sisters, the accusers, the one who accuses them day and night before our God has been thrown down. So to me, the theme of Yom Kippur is this, confession and then atonement. Confession and then atonement. That's why I had the kids up here doing 1 John 1, 9. If we confess, that's a big if, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does that sound like Yom Kippur language to you? Me too. Confession and atonement. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Ooh, that's getting in my comfort zone there. I don't know. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Man, picture that. If we all did that right there, just James 5.16, if we just confessed our sins to one another, and then the person to whom you confessed, turned around and said, you know what, I'm gonna to commit to pray for you now. Wow, that'd be transformational, right? This is from the Amidah, the, the Shimone Esrei as it's also called. Forgive us our Father. This is a prayer that's prayed thrice daily by observant Jews. Forgive us our Father for we have sinned, we have committed kata. Pardon us our King for we have committed transgressions, Pesha. For you pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, O Lord, who graciously and will ever willing forgive. So I'm going to submit that confession is a prerequisite to atonement, right? And I struggle with that so much. But have you ever been in like a fight with your spouse and you knew you were wrong? I know Jim, you've never been. Jim's never been in that predicament. I'm kidding. Have you ever been in that situation? And all you had to do was say, honey, I'm wrong. You're right. And have you ever done that before? It's so hard, isn't it? Just to be like, wow, I'm right. Or, I'm wrong. <laughs> Freudian slip there, huh? Just to be like, Stacy, I'm wrong. You're right. Let's move on. No, don't say the move on part. That sounds like you're rushing how do we move on from here? But once you're able to swallow that pride and confess, it's like restoration moves so much faster, doesn't it? It's so much more expedited than if you're like just sitting there and you still have your guard up and I'm still defending my position even though I know that I have transgressed her. If I just say, you know what? I let my guard down. I, I'm wrong. Will you forgive me? And then Stacy's heart just melts and she's just like, yeah, of course I forgive you. I love you. You know? I know you didn't mean to do that. But don't, you know, don't double down on your resolve when you know you're wrong. Just confess. Atonement can be made. That can be made on an interpersonal level between us. So that brings me back to our shepherd king. Psalm 51. Turn there if you can. Psalm 51. David is an adulterous murderer at this point. 
he's yet to face his sin face to face. He's yet to see that. But David is a man after what? God's own heart. So what is the heart of God? The Torah. What is the heart of the Torah? Leviticus. What's the heart of Leviticus? Yom Kippur. What's at the heart of Yom Kippur? Confession and atonement. Let's see if David really is a man after God's own heart. Now the prefix of mine in verse 2, it says, A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet confronted him after his affair with Bathsheba. Now David could double down and be like, she was tempting me, I'm a man, I'm a red-blooded man, she shouldn't be doing that, right? Her husband, I don't even know what kind of husband he was anyways, maybe she deserved a better man, right? But is that the heart of God that he was after? Let's find out. He says, God, in your grace, have mercy on me. In your great compassion, blot out my pesha, my crimes. Wash me completely of my guilt. Cleanse me from my avon. For I know my chata, my sins. My sin, it confronts me all the time. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil from your perspective so that you are right in accusing me and justified in passing a sentence against me. True, I was born guilty. Well, I was a sinner since the moment my mother conceived me. Still, you want truth in the inner person. So make me know wisdom in my inmost heart. Sprinkle me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I can be whiter than snow. Let me hear the sound of joy and gladness so that the bones you crushed can rejoice. Turn away your face from my sins and blot out all of my crimes. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew in me a right spirit. Don't push me away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore, restore my joy in your salvation and let a willing spirit uphold me. And then I will teach the wicked your ways and sinners will return to you. Do you hear the Yom Kippur language in there? Do you hear a heart of confession and repentance? So in verse one, on whose, on what basis did David ask for forgiveness? In his grace and mercy. Verse four, against whom did David realize he sinned? Not Uriah, not Bathsheba, but against his creator. Let's go to verse 17. I'll back up a little bit, go to verse 15. Adonai, open my lips, then my mouth will praise you. For you don't want sacrifices, or I would just give them. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice to God is a broken spirit. God, you, you won't spurn a broken, chastised heart. 
So, verse 17, what kind of sacrifice is pleasing to God? When we get caught in our sin, a broken spirit, a contrite heart is what he wants. So, to wrap all this up with a bow, I believe that being after God's own heart is not seeking to fill our brains with information about the Torah, to fill our brains with what the end times will look like when they play out. But being after God's own heart involves realizing that in light of his perfection, we're broken, we're sinners. And sometimes what happens, and I've seen it time and time again, people will come into this place, this walk, this movement, whatever you wanna call it, and we forget that. We just simply forget that. And Satan, Satan, uses our pride because we have filled our brains. He uses our pride to get us to a point where we won't confess. And we won't be like David was. That in the midst of our sin, we can't just say, God, my bones are broken. Heal me. Renew a right spirit within me. And I pray that I never get to that point. He always gives me a contrite heart that's in fear and in awe of his power and goodness and perfection. One more passage I want to take you to, and I'll close in prayer, is Psalm 32. So flip back a couple more here, and we'll close with this. How blessed are those whose offense is forgiven, David says. Those whose sins have been kafar, covered. How blessed those are to whom Adonai imputes no guilt, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I keep silent, my bones wasted away because of my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. The sap in me dried up as in the summer drought. When I acknowledged my Chata to you, my sin to you. When I stopped concealing my guilt and said, I will confess my offenses, my Pesha to Adonai. Then you, you forgave the Avon of my Pesha. You hear all three levels of sin there. So what's going on in Yom Kippur? is the opposite of what Adam and Eve did when they were caught in their sin. Remember, they made excuses. They made for themselves clothing. They tried to recreate the clothing of glory that they were stripped of. And they did it with fig leaves. And interestingly enough, the Hebrew word for fig leaf is te'inah, the Hebrew word for excuses is te'ona. It's a play on words that they clothe themselves in excuses. May we be people who stop making excuses for sin and arrogance and pride and instead be people who confess to each other that we're broken, we need healing, and we need God's grace and mercy. Let's pray and then we'll do a Q&A. Abba Father, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. 
And I thank you that I know your heart. And just like David, I can pursue it and chase after it. I rebuke a spirit of pride in me. And Satan's scheme and attempts to bring down my attempts to draw close to you through my own pride, through my own arrogance and self-righteousness. I repent of that and I confess that before all people. Gabe Rutledge is broken and Gabe Rutledge is a sinner in need of your redemption. And Father, I pray for this congregation that we be people who are known for our brokenness and our humility despite how much knowledge we accumulate, we still remember that we are nothing without the blood of the Lamb. I pray all these things in His beautiful and matchless name. Amen. So guys, I'd like to do a little bit of Q&A. Um, or just if you have comments about this week's Torah portion, feel free to throw those at me. While you're thinking of questions, um, we have uh, the Miller family are visiting today, so make sure you make them feel welcome. And then we have uh, up here in the second row, we have folks from Tennessee, California, and um, looking forward to meeting you guys and getting to talk to you. So make sure you make them feel welcome. Let's make sure they go through the line first if they want to stick around for food. And um, we'll, we'll uh, give them a warm dose and welcome. And the storm has already welcomed you today. <laughs> we um, <laughs> Xavier and Rebecca and my whole family, we heard the alarm. Well, first we heard the, the alerts going off on our phone this morning around our breakfast table. And uh, I was like, well, that's not exactly, that could be like five miles away, you know? And I was like, but the, alarm, the sirens that go off, that's probably a little bit more exact. That's probably within, you know, I don't know, maybe a mile or two or something like that. And it was probably just a couple of minutes after I said that, we started hearing the sirens going off. And I was like, all right, well, it's time to go to the basement. So we all went out of the basement and had an impromptu uh, Bible study down in our basement. We read Psalm, uh, Matthew 8, Yeshua calming the storm and on the Sea of Galilee. And, um, so that was a fun memory, but welcome to Alabama and our crazy weather. But any questions or comments or anything you guys might have? Yeah, Patrick. I just have a comment. So, you know, the song goes, He came from heaven to earth to show us the way, right? Yeah. Here he said one of the best ways to do that is to serve each other um, in a literal sense, but also in a, an ongoing non-literal sense, but washing each other's feet, which is what we did a few weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. And that's always a good check and balance for me. Um, you know, the, the, the Lord has always convicted me when I have an issue or a place of anger or a grudge against someone. It's always like... If Yeshua washed Judas's feet, I should be willing to wash that person's. I should be first in line to want to wash their feet. Um, any other thoughts, questions? Yeah, May. Okay, so you said how their garments were made of linen. Is there like mm -hmm. a reason behind that? Yeah, um, linen, and there's people who know a lot more about linen in the room than I do, but I will, I will attempt to explain. Linen has very uh, medicinal qualities to it as a fabric. 
It's also a fabric that has a hard time absorbing impurities. Um, it's a pure uh, fabric. So it represents at its core fabric that is pure and fabric that is healing. Does that answer your question? Is there any other linen gurus in here that would like to ask why there was linen? Messianic people love linen. To make it, they also crush it to fibers. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's got to be broken and crushed. Yeah, that's a really good thought. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, very good question, though, man. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, David. The word um, kafar. Kafar, yeah. To cover. Yep. Uh, and it, does it also mean to purge or to, like, cleanse? Mm. Not really. Yeah, you're going to have to dig really deep to find something where it says to, like, basically absolve, like, completely. Um, and that's kind of the essence of the writer of Hebrews, is that, like, once and for all, he absolved that sin. Whereas the blood of bulls and goats, you know, it couldn't completely, it just covered that sin. And it was an annual thing that had to be renewed over and over. And the essence of the, of the book of Hebrews is like, it's done. You know, it's, it's absolved. Um, but yeah, that word kippur, it's the same word as kafar. That's where we get the word um, kafar nahum, or kapernum. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, um, it means basically to patch over something, to seal it up, to cover it. Um, the ark, the, the cover of the ark was called the, the kafur, kapur, uh, I believe it's kapur, but it's that same root. But yeah, good question. Anything else? Michael. Yes, so uh, before Yeshua died, um, Yom Kippur was a picture of what was to come. Mm-hmm. When the third temple is built and service is restored in the temple, mm-hmm. Perhaps, yeah. And some people would even say, and I don't want to get into the weeds on this, but some people would say that Yom Kippur is not going to exist. So, I don't want to get into the weeds on it, but that's, you should study that out and, and let me know what you think. Yeah. Even even rabbinics say that, that Yom Kippur might be one of the holy days and the sacrifices that, that doesn't exist in the Messianic, the age to come, the Olam Haba. But, I don't know. Yeah, Stacy. Man, they had to be, they had to be brave. Uh, what she said, and oftentimes their lives, lives were lost because of what they said. She said, um, "We don't know what that's like to be Nathan to approach the king and and say, King, you've messed up, you sinned, you need to repent.' Like that king could have had Nathan's head, right? And Nathan's probably standing there, just you know, in boldness, knowing I got to do this, I got to confront the king. So, any other questions? Good questions and comments. Anything else? Good, you guys know everything about this week's horror portion. Everything there is in there, it's awesome, so bad.